When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is a talk given by Jonathan Holmes during GDUX Part D of 2019. Also, I want to mention our two sponsors that made the conference possible, Perforce. If you are looking as a professional or individual trying to manage your project in the correct way, in the best way, you want to go to perforce.com for version control abilities. This is something I've been using throughout my professional career, and now I'm using it on my own personal projects and indie projects that I'm developing. So if you guys want to have your work saved and reliably working, you want to go to perforce.com and use and take advantage of their indie license, which is free right now for all five users uh, or less. So go to perforce.com and check that out. In addition, I want to also thank Unity for sponsoring this talk and the conference. Unity.com is the number one game engine out there that you want to use within your projects. So if you have an idea and if you want to convey that idea in the best way possible, go to Unity.com, download the engine and check out the community they have over there, which has been really great to kind of support and lend knowledge to help you move forward and complete your project and bring it out to the masses and the people that want to play your game. So go to unity.com and check them out. Lastly, I want to thank Muti from our Patreon support at the silver membership level. Muti has made it possible to bring this podcast to you guys and the conference and anything that I do to you. So if you want to give support and help out and keep the lights on, as well as delivering quality content. Uh, Become a Patreon member to get access to our exclusive Game Dev Unchained, Life Unchained podcast that gives you the insight behind the scenes and the application of how I'm using all these interviews, talks with professionals and applying it to my startup businesses. In addition, you'll have early access and other fun things at the Patreon level. So if you want to give the support, go to patreon.com forward slash Unchained, or check out the link in the description of this episode. Aside from that, join us in our Discord channel. Every week I game out on specific days with the audience. Right now we're kind of hot with Modern Warfare, and I'm trying to get a five versus five match between the Discord channel of Blue Champs and GameSchool Online. So pitting us against each other will be a fun way to kind of game out and take the ease off of our stressful days. So go over there to our Discord channel, which can be found on GameDevOnChain.com and join the Blue Champs Discord channel so we can game out and talk smack. Good. So Jonathan, a longtime friend of the podcast, uh, is here 
to share his story. So you're a representative at Quicksil. Obviously, if people out there have been living out in Iraq, uh, we like seeing that little uh, logo right there on your shirt. Do you mind kind of sharing a little bit about your resume for people who haven't met you and what you are focusing today on today's talk? That's a tall order. Yeah. So uh, my background uh, started in modding back in the God, the Command and Conquer days slash flight simulation and stuff. And then from there, I became a military simulation artist. And I was a production artist making tanks and, and the like for the better part of six years straight. And that was an interesting job that kind of led me into working at Quixel in the sense that the first version of Dedu was something that I had to get familiar with to get quick at texturing things. And then they released the first version of the Quixel suite, which had a ton of problems and a ton of potential. And through working with it and constantly understanding how others worked with it and what their problems were, I was able to go to places like Polycount, just kind of volunteer some time to help out and and get people to see, hey, yeah, maybe it's got bugs, but here's how you work around them and make a better product. Uh, So you don't have to be angry. You can, you you know, resolve these issues that you're running into. It's no big deal. And one thing led to another and I took an offer of employment just because, you know, being helpful can pay a lot of dividends. Um, and now I've been working at Quixel since late 2014. So roughly five years. So that's me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's quite a path. And a lot of these speakers that we have on share one common story is the ability to work from home or at least work freely and just concentrate on the work. It is, uh, it is a, a trend that I hope picks up a lot sooner with everybody that is uh, interested. So can you kind of talk about briefly about that transition? We spent like about an hour talking to Colin and how he just chosen a place where he wants to uh, kind of set his uh, family, which is in Oregon. Uh, Can you kind of talk about your backstory of how you were able to kind of get to that position and be able to kind of work freely and concentrate on just making good art? So uh, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, For most people, like the beginning of the story would require like a lot of hard work. And that's kind of where mine starts to, except mine differs in the sense that I got laid off. And that's how I ended up working at home. Um, for the longest time, I was working part-time at Quixel and then working full-time at the office. And that was not an experience I would recommend because I was working something along the lines of 60 to 80 hours a week. But it paid off in the end because when I eventually did get laid off from my office job, Teddy just reached out to me, you know, Teddy being our CEO, he's like, Hey, you know, I know you need a job and you've been working with us for a long time. Why don't you come work for us full time? Which they wanted me to do that to begin with. So I took the offer and I got to admit, man, it was scary. I mean, working from home is, is not the same as it is in, in say Europe where you can go, you don't have to worry about healthcare and things of that nature. Like your ability to go to the doctor here and not pay an inordinate amount of money is tied to your employer, right? Like, you know this because you worked at an office or you worked for a company. So you know what it's like to be on employer healthcare. Well, it's even worse when you've got two kids and a wife and you got to take care of them too. So that's, that was terrifying. And then when I eventually signed up to the healthcare exchanges and I was able to just firmly plant my butt here and work at home and I didn't have to worry anymore. And I didn't have to wonder about, you know, how much I hated going to work. It was, it was nice. It was terrifying, but in the end it was totally worth the, 
the ordeal uh, is the best way to put it. The change in uh, scheduling is definitely something, too, that I want to touch on, where working from home has its pros and benefits, especially within the family. It's very hard to convince the wife that you are working, that you can't do X or Y chores, uh, because in reality, you would be at uh, office right now. Like, uh, it's something that right. I, I feel like not a lot of people talk about. Can you kind of share your experience with that and how long it took you to kind of adjust and your family adjust to daddy or husband is working right now? Do not so bother. That, that is still something that we struggle with because it's, I'm, I'm very good at masking what it is that I'm currently doing at the time because it looks like I'm playing video games to the kids. You know, I'm, I work on art. So to them, you know, my son's only six years old. To him, it looks like I'm playing games. So sometimes he'll come up and say, hey, you know, can you come play this or something with me? You're not doing anything. And I'm like, kid, I'm, I'm working right now. I, I can't step away from this. I have to work. Like, uh, he's actually in the other room right now. I had to ask him to be quiet because we had just gotten back from picking him up at school. And that's another thing I never got to go do. Like I would be at the office right now and I wouldn't get home for another, probably another four hours. It's like almost four o'clock here. So I'd get home super late every night. And by the time I get home, he's going to bed, but I see my kids way more than I ever did. And like, and when it comes to like your wife and whatnot, or at least my wife, um, it took some adjustment for her to understand innately that yes, even though I'm home, it doesn't mean I'm available to just get up and do other things all the time. I still have obligations. I still have things I have to do. Uh, that doesn't mean I can't get up. And I do like today I was able to walk out front and finish some of the prep work that we're doing to the house to sell it, uh, which was trimming one of these giant cypress bushes I have again, couldn't do that when I was at the office because I was stuck there for at least another four hours. So there, there's a lot of benefits to it. And there is a bit of a learning curve where everybody has to adjust that to the fact that just because you're here now doesn't actually mean you're here. You're, you have other things that you need to do. So, yeah, it's definitely a hard sell, uh, especially to the children. I mean, it's hard enough to kind of sell like I make games uh, and, 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 and kind of sell that in a way that. Uh, doesn't look like I'm playing games, <laughs> but to kind of be yeah, there yeah. as well and be like, well, you're already there. Why don't you just play with me? It's like, no, I'm, I'm actually, this is my job. It's like, so that's the only thing. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there are many things, but the, the main thing I, not a real fear, but what what's playful is like now that, you know, my, both my wife and I, my, myself are, are working from home, right? Um, my children are young enough to kind of grow up with this mindset. It's like, well, what is work really? I see my parents all the time, which is something I hope when they grow up, they really appreciate. But in reality, it's, uh, I wonder if it does anything in a negative way where like, well, th this is what work looks like. Therefore, <laughs> why am I at work? I don't know. Uh, is that something that you always think about? It's like, how do I teach my children to like, they have to work hard first to get to the state uh, to be able to have the, the ability and the freedom to do what we're doing, which is being home and, and, and focusing on the things we want to focus on. Well, that's something that my daughter has issues with right now. Like she's going through the same path in life that I went through where she's kind of falling behind in school, not because she's not intelligent or because she doesn't know the schoolwork or anything, but because she's just lazy and you know, kids are right. I was super lazy and I didn't have anybody to hold a fire to my ass to tell me, Hey, you need to do this. 
And I mean, I'm going to level with you right now. Not a lot of people know this, but I'm a high school dropout. I dropped out one month before I was due to graduate. And if it hadn't been for my wife, I would probably still be the typical dropout with no success working at like a minimum wage job that I hate. Um, she pushed me to go get my GED to go to college and to do everything else that I should have done to begin with. I just didn't have any motivation. And like, again, like when your kids watch you and they're like, Oh, well, yeah, you know, you, you got to this point. It's so amazing that you're here. What they don't see is the struggle, right? Like, like you said, they only see the end result. Uh, it took me a lot of hard work to get to where I'm at. I had to, you know, I don't want to say suffer, but I had to deal with six years of working in a very, very strict type of environment where you're basically a cog in a machine. It's, it's not like, like mill sim is not like game art where like, yes, you're kind of another cog in a machine, but you have more creativity in, in games. Whereas in mill sim, you have to make everything exactly to spec every single time. You're basically a glorified technician. And it was, it was rough. Honestly, it really, it really sucked. And then like, my daughter doesn't see this. She just saw that I went to work and I would come home. So she missed out on all these other steps that led to this. She just saw me one day. Oh yeah, I'm working at home now. I got laid off and everything's fine. Like she doesn't see the, I made terrible decisions at one point in my life. And these things have all become who I am. Like these decisions and choices have made me who I am now. Uh, she just sees what I did and who I am, not where I came from. So I, I've tried to drill that into her. Like you can't make these mistakes now. I've already made them. I'm telling you exactly where they're going to take you. Don't do that to yourself. Yeah. It's one of those things that I'm consciously aware of as myself, like uh, to kind of share and relate to your story. It took me, uh, I, I was spending about a year over a year, uh, commuting to San Francisco. I don't know if I ever told you this for a good year and a half. There was a really good job in San Francisco. I'm, I'm located in Orange County. So Southern California for anybody that's not a part of California. Uh, so I, I didn't want to move back to the Bay Area. So I kind of kept my family down here as I was spending the week pretty much going to work uh, like a nine to five up in San Francisco. So for a good year and a half, every weekend I would fly back or commute back uh, to spend time. And so it was tough in a non-traditional way of spending uh, time with the family only on the weekends. But that whole year and a half was to kind of prep for what I'm doing now to kind of be able to uh, work for myself, work from home. But it is a it is a hard thing to kind of communicate to the kid because uh, my eight-year-old, uh, well, nine-year-old now, uh, just sees that like, hey, for a whole year, you've been telling me that you would work from home after this whole thing is figured out. And now that you're home, it's like, why can't we just hang out more because you're at home anyways? It's like, well, first of all, you know, it took a while to kind of figure this out. And now we're at a state where I can work from home and pick you up and all these little things that they'll appreciate later not now but they'll appreciate later <laughs> and okay. uh and then slowly if things do real really well then i'll work less and less and then maybe mondays or tuesday will be our hangout time or something like that but those are steps that it's hard to communicate to a child uh, that just sees like well you're here why not and sometimes it actually does kind of correct my course a bit where like looking through the eyes of a child uh just simply like while well, you're here why don't you hang out it kind of forces me you know what i can take a break right now you want to do something yeah. let's do something because we are kind of laser focused and i think uh, uh make making opportunities for ourselves to be able to work from home now uh 
I think kind of sets our type of personality aside and say like we're very gear focused on com- accomplishing self-determined task but uh it is really hard for us to kind of pry ourselves away from that and it's like you know hey enjoy life <laughs> and then go back to it uh it's it's, it's yeah. a hard lesson that i i'm slowly realizing that's been a struggle for me is understanding when and where to step away right because it's like you there's no real separation from work when i'm at home so when i'm at my computer i'm usually working even if i don't want to be so one of the things i was looking forward to with a new house that we're getting ready to sell this one move to hopefully something a little larger with a dedicated office is that i can just step out of it and be done i can turn off my phone not have to worry about it and if i don't want to do anything i don't have to it's been getting closer to that. I mean, recently I got promoted at Quixel, so I'm now the support lead in addition to community manager and simulation sales and all the other crazy stuff that I do. Um, but I have a team of people that works with me now, so that takes a lot of the effort off my shoulders, and I can focus on managing them and less on doing the stuff that I was doing, which was being more of a frontline person for issues and, and um, questions and things of that nature. So with moving to the new house, it's, it's just basically going to make my life a lot easier to finally have that separation that I had when I was at the office. And that's something you probably, as you just discovered, I mean, even mentioned is that you're running into the same issue. You're having a hard time separating work and family. It's like, it's very tough to find that time, even though you're home because you still have those obligations. And in some ways it's even easier to slip into it because it's, there's no real like separation between the two. It's just, it's very blurred. Yes. And so kind of like a segue to uh, the meat at the topic here. Um, So photogrammetry is something that I was, I feel like I was pretty late in the game. So in 20, just to give some kind of like developer uh, perspective, I was, uh, I think it was 2016 when we just finished Call of Duty Advanced Warfare and we're looking to work on World War II, right? So this is the onslaught of the revival of the World War II shooters, uh, World War I shooters with Battlefield. And so Battlefield was kind of ahead of us into using photogrammetry um, because they were being released before us. But then uh, on the ground floor... Uh, we were finally shifting from uh, using software to create textures to photogrammetry, taking images. And when I looked at that, I was like, okay, this is a whole different type of mindset. This is definitely the future. I can definitely also see how environment artists can be resistant to it, especially texture artists. Is like, what do they do now? Well, there's a little, a lot of prep still, right? But that is like a, a, a hard slap in the face for a lot of developers. And we were in a transitional period, so it wasn't guaranteed at that point where this is the way things are going to be. So that was 2016. And fast forward to 2019 with Quixel being the leading software for photogrammetry. Where are we with this? And you being without divulging too much of uh, NDA or any of that sort, like artists, developers, anybody that is a part of uh, game development that is making somewhat of a realistic game, uh, where do we need to be with uh, the idea of photogrammetry kind of taking over the industry? I, I At the risk of saying too much, so I'm going to try to very, very, very heavily moderate what I'm about to say. There are some groundbreaking things coming in the near future. I can't say what exactly. I can't say when. But if you're not using Megascan soon, I would recommend looking into it. Uh, it is going to be the future. Uh, Megascans is 
itself just such a powerful ecosystem of tools and textures that you just can't get anywhere else. There is no library in the world that even comes close to the level of uh, quality and the level of just assets, like just the amount, sheer amount that we have. We have over 10,000 assets right now, and each one of them is scanned in such a way that like they're almost visually indistinguishable from reality. And when you throw these things into a real-time engine or even a renderer, it's ridiculous how good the quality is for anybody. And it's, you did bring up a fair point. Yes. You know, in the beginning people did kind of look at this, like, is this kind of like automation, but not, is this like destroying my job? But what's really happening here is that it's opening up potential that we didn't have before. Instead of having to focus on grunt work and making the same thing every single time, and as you and I both know, we've been artists and we've made production art in the past. That's pretty much all you do. You make stuff that already exists. How many times have we made a tire? How many times have you made a barrel? How many times have you made stone or, or bricks? How many more times do we need to make the same thing before we, we just say enough? We don't need to waste time doing this. And that's kind of where companies are getting to with this stuff. It's like, why are we going to keep paying for things that already exist when we can just go here, get it on uh, a bulk discount? And then be done with it and then just give this to the artist to create something with. So not to, you know, monopolize too much here, but like on your you know subject of, you know, artists saying, what do I do now? It's like, well, you now focus on creating art and less on creating the same thing that you already created before. Uh, that, that's been pretty much like what Teddy calls it is democratizing art. And that's kind of what the entire push that we're doing with Megascans is. That's exactly what we've been trying to do is to get away from only AAA quality being something that you have to pay millions of dollars for at a studio to being something that you can do as an indie studio or even as a single person. The leap that I kind of equate this movement, um, at least from the PS2 to the PS3, PS2 kind of had it, where the norm app was a big wave of uh, technological shift to the visuals, yeah. but also to the technique and pipeline of like, this is the gold standard. Uh, it wasn't even until real-time uh, GI became part of our pipeline and even now ray tracing, but I kind of equate the mega scan or the photogrammetry movement as finally a huge step from a changing of um, workflow, not so much as in um, kind of just eliminating jobs. It's, it is automation, but just freeing up, like you said, uh, the ability to just focus on creativity. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff, there's only so many ways that I want to randomize uh, a rock or a rock formation. Uh, I mean, it's the same kind of idea where, uh, you know, I think every environment artist, at least a prop artist, uh, have at least a picture in the mind of when they were sculpting a rock. And I know, <laughs> and that was never, never fun. And I know we always dived into those tutorials. Like, how do I make the best rock? But it's just so much better time spent doing other creative things to kind of you actually have a huge impact on, on the game that you're actually working on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and the, again, it's all about democratizing art. It's less about eliminating jobs. Like if you're, if your job is just making rocks, then maybe it might come to that point, but there's still going to be applications where a rock needs to be unique. And you may not be able to get that with mega scans until we eventually scan every rock known to man or 
every rock on the planet. <laughs> but for the time being, if you're still making traditional art or you're making art to order, then you don't really have anything to worry about. But it's one of those things that like, and you'll see this on like, if you're, you're an old school guy, you know about polycount. I don't know if everybody watching does, but there it's a common discussion point in the history of polycount that people will say is using X cheating X being whatever the subject is at the time is using a camera cheating is using Photoshop cheating is using, uh, what is it? Uh, is using like DDU cheating is using mega scans cheating. There's no cheating. The end result is the only thing that matters. And if you can get to that end result before the next guy does, you have the competitive advantage. If you can get to that end result and not waste a bunch of money in the, in the process, you're even better off. So that's really how it all comes down to like the art is a goal in and of itself, but there's also the business aspect of it that a lot of people tend to forget. And while you're out there making the same thing over and over, you're not really proving that you're mastering all these new pipelines that are coming up. And like Megascans itself is not going away. If anything, it's getting stronger and more studios are using it. And you're, I don't want to toot our own horn too much, but I do think that you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't know at least the basics of working with a photogrammetry workflow. It is just faster, it's more accurate, and it's just honestly to me more fun to spend more time making what I want to see and less time trying to get all that stuff to put together. It's like buying a Lego kit and then making what I want to make out of it rather than having to go smelt all the plastic and then put the Lego kit together with all the blueprints to do it. You know? Mm -hmm. And I always relate it to kind of like uh, another discipline that kind of went through the same kind of shift that we we are going through right now. Uh, the animators, when mocap became the standard of how they do things, I remember kind of laughing at that being like, hey, well, I mean, I guess it was nice knowing you. But in reality, it was more like, you know, there's a lot more work to kind of clean up to make that game ready. It was just a good yes. jump start to uh, their job to kind of not waste time. Um, or at least give some inspiration because in a mocap studio, a director or anybody that is a lead or animation lead can actually direct and get different results without wasting an animator's time hand keying all that. And so if anything, it has helped the process and an animator nowadays would have to know some type of, at least a senior or professional, uh, know that workflow to be relevant to any kind of realistic, uh, game environment. Right. So I, I feel it's the same yeah. with uh, uh, environment artists or artists in general that are using textures in some way that we have to get used to that workflow, not into the extent that we have to clean up photogrammetry unless you're a studio that isn't using make scans and using your own photos uh, to clean up. Sure, there is that as technical aspect to, to making it ready. But in most cases, we're most likely using a library full of things to apply. So um, there are certain certain differences but i think there's a shift now that most studios would you say are already incorporating photogrammetry if they're making a realistic game how much of a oh, percentage absolutely. would you say okay a large percentage uh, right minimum minimum of a large percentage i'd say at least 50 to 60 percent of the major studios are using it i mean hell if you go to quixel.com right now the the landing page is the lion king I mean, Disney used the Lion King, or sorry, Megascans in the production of the Lion King. It's like all over our uh, splash screens and everything. It's a it's a major accomplishment for us to have been part of such an awesome film and something that so many people have seen, yet they don't even know who we are. Yeah. Um, so it's it's one of those things. It's like maybe the cost of of the license 
out, not even maybe, absolutely. The, the cost of the licensing always outweighs the cost of the artist. If it costs, I don't know, $500,000, I'm just going to throw a number out there to license assets to use for a film or a game, but you end up getting the same work done in half the time. If you had to pay 10 artists to do that, you're saving yourself a ton of time and you're still employing people to take those assets and put them together and make things. So it's not like anybody's being made redundant. Hell, the scene I'm working on right now, which is why my face keeps getting lit up and, and uh, all sorts of stuff because I'm working on Unreal as we talk. Um, I have saved so much time on this project just by incorporating Megascans into it. Of course, I get it for free because I work here. But you know, the, the, the point being, time is money. If I have to go back and make all these assets by hand, there's no guarantee that they're A, going to look good, B, be done in time for my personal production timeline or see even just be worth the effort. Uh, I remember like, hell, the, this actual scene that I'm working on is my old college capstone project. Right. And I did this thing over the course of a year, like having to build a character, animate her, build an entire solar system scene to animate a camera flying through it and then put it all together with an unreal development kit scene. Uh, like really old school here, right? UDK, <laughs> like, putting all this stuff together in the course of a year before I graduated. So I'd have something to show off to say, Hey, I can, I have some marketable skills and yet I'm doing more in like one week than I did in six months just mm -hmm. from using mega scans. <laughs> well, I, I kind of want to talk about this uh, one pivotal point. A lot of developers, we know two types, right? One that is uh, embracing of bleeding technology as you should. Uh, but another that are kind of stuck in this long game dev cycle, especially if it's like five to eight years to complete a game, they're kind of used to this one particular workflow that they kind of carry out. And eight years pass in a game dev cycle is a really long time. It's like two lifetimes uh, where in a blink of an eye, you miss out on a lot of new technology. So what do you say to these people who probably haven't touched or heard of photogrammetry because they're stuck in like a blizzard like long dev cycle where they haven't had the need or the the push to actually look at new ways to do things like how do we encourage and how do you feel like these developers uh don't get left behind but obviously are skilled That's enough. To, yeah, I mean, like that, I'm sure you know, like uh, certain friends are so resistant to like every new software that comes out and they're still using yeah. X normal <laughs> or, or like a really old baking software. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking yes. about. Yes, I actually, I know some people like that right off the bat. Like I know some people who will not use a better baker than X normal because, well, X normal is free. And what else? I already know X normal. Therefore, there's nothing else that could possibly be better than what I'm already doing. Uh, never mind the fact that it's almost empirically proven at this point that Marmoset Toolbag 3 is the absolute best software for not only previewing assets, but for baking them. I can't think of using anything else. And I was resistant to it at first because I'm like, uh, how, how good could a, could a tool designed for previewing assets really be at baking? Pardon my language, but really fucking good. <laughs> like phenomenally good, like outstandingly good. And if I hadn't just taken that time to look at it and be like, you know what? I need to drop my biases and just look at this thing, see what it does, play with it and do some test assets. I was a, a mighty bait convert for the longest time. I'm like, I paid money for this, a hundred bucks for this license. This has got to be the best out there because I paid for it. You know, that, that sunk cost fallacy people always bring up. Um, just because you paid for something 
at a certain price doesn't mean it's the best thing out there. And just because you've been working with it for the longest time or doing it this way forever doesn't mean it's the best way to work. There are objectively better, better ways to do everything. That's one of the reasons why photogrammetry is such a good workflow because you're just, instead of having to replicate things that already exist, you just have those things and you just place them in and work with them like you would traditionally, except you don't, you cut out the asset creation process for the raw textures that you apply to things. So what do you say to people who are, are stuck in that, that old mindset of, well, this is the way I've always done it. So therefore I'll just keep doing it. You have to change and you have to adapt. We're not lawyers. We're not bankers. We're not technicians. We're artists and artists that are working on the cutting edge have to stay relevant. And you can't stay relevant if you just say, well, the way I did it 10 years ago is the way I'm always going to do it. Because 10 years ago, we didn't even have PBR. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of these other technologies that make life so much easier. I mean, Unreal 4 wasn't even a thing back then. Unity wasn't really a thing back then. Kind of was, kind of wasn't. Um, there, there's so many like life-changing workflows that we've gotten over the years that have gotten so much better because people have decided to sink the time into learning them and understanding them. Like 10 years ago, even ZBrush wasn't really much of a thing either. It was around, but it wasn't anywhere near as like capable or as utilized as it is now. Mudbox was still something I worked in, but I gave it up to learn how to use ZBrush. It's like, there's just, sometimes you got to bite the bullet and just say, yeah, I made a choice to, to learn this, but that doesn't mean it's the right way every single time. You always have to be willing to learn more. You can't just be like, you can't think like you're a boomer, right? You can't just be like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm old, therefore I can't change. You can absolutely change. I'm 35 and I'm still learning new stuff. You got to be willing to do that, to be an artist in this industry. You have to constantly be willing to change and challenge yourself. That's part of the process. Like I said, we're not lawyers. It, the, the, the laws and the, and the ways we work don't change every 20 years. They change oftentimes every six months, even sooner sometimes. Yeah, it's definitely one of those uh, aching pains. I think uh, out of all the disciplines, environment artists get it the hardest because we're the ones that build the world. And it's kind of like kind of kind of kind of showing off our feathers a bit. But it's true, man. I I don't know any other discipline that has like eight different programs open at once just to do one prop. (laughs) And it's (laughs) and at some point I had to stop. I was like, man, I. Because uh, it's great to have that workflows established at a studio where you put in the years where they allow you to have all that software bought so that you can do and be comfortable. But as soon as you shift to a different studio, you're like, how many softwares you need day one? <laughs> That's mm-hmm. when you start really, right, I got to condense and have to earn my software and my trust with these guys before they shell out like $10,000 of software just for me to get one prop going through. So I, oh God, that's I the, about that too. let's talk about that because that, that, that's the other side of the spectrum where I think we all know that one guy who is on the bleeding edge, right? On the bleeding edge of tech and he has one for unwrapping and he has one for baking. He has one for 3D software. He has one for sculpting. He has one for texturing. He has one for like tieable texturing. It's like, all right, let's take a step back, oh man. <laughs> let's talk about the so dangers of that. Yeah. Sorry, about it. I didn't cut you off there, but I totally worked with a guy like that. Uh, I don't want to name him. I'm not going to say where I worked with him at, uh, but this guy, he was like, he came from EA. So everybody thought he was like, you know, hot shit. Like he knew what he was talking about. We, we were all sim guys. So EA has a, a studio uh, called Tiberon, which made all of like the, the jungle strike and nuclear strike games. If you remember those, the, the helicopter. 
awesome, yeah, yeah, awesome yeah. games. Um, but they they're better known for making like the Madden games of the EA Sports place. So like we, it's like the only game major game studio we have here in Orlando. And he came from Tiberon and he came to work with us. And all of us being sim drones are like, oh, man, this guy's got to be the best. He's got to be amazing. Well, unfortunately, that's not always how it works. Just because you work somewhere doesn't mean you actually know anything or and that's not to be a slight at him. He did know stuff. He was a good artist. But your reputation should not be associated with the company that you work with. Just because you work at big name studio doesn't mean you're the, the best artist out there. And it definitely doesn't mean that you your opinions have the weight of gold. Because um, this guy like pushed for a ton of software changes in, in the office we were at. And it was like, we should use Hedis. Uh, if you know what Hedis is, Hedis UV layout. Um, it used oh, yeah. to be the gold standard for doing UVs. Dude, it took it me a while. To, just sorry to take you off tangent here. Not really, fine. but uh, I won't be long, but it took me a while to get off that software because it was like my fourth to fifth studio where I asked for it and they had to send like a dongle because it's being run by one guy. <laughs> Right. And yes. it's like, all right, at some point I got to abandon this. The software hasn't been updated. I love it, but I got to start looking at options. So, yeah. And that was the, the problem that we had. It's like there was no workflow to be gained, no workflow speeds, no nothing to be gained from working with Hedis. It was good software. It was developed by good people, but it doesn't get used anymore. And we didn't know any better because we just thought this guy knew everything because he came from EA. So that was our mistake. So we bought a bunch of licenses to Hedda's and for a small studio, this was a lot of money. Okay. Like this was almost enough to hire another artist for the, the price that they were offering. And what we ended up doing was like, like we never used it. We, we used it like once or twice. And it was like, for me, it was faster to just, I had a plugin for Max that I still use now. Um, Polyon wrapper. If you've ever heard of that from polytools3d.com yeah. paid 40 bucks for it. And it speeds up my ability to do unwraps by a factor of like 20. So I'm able to just do quick planar maps and relax them and toss them into a, a you know, a UV layout. And I'm, I'm done. And like maybe 5% of the time it would have taken me to work with something using Hedis, having to slice up polygons and press little hotkeys to figure out what does what. And trying to navigate this, this user interface that was made in like 1992. I'm like, I can't do this anymore, man. So like nobody used it, but like, like you said, you get those people that, that push for these, these workflows and these software and then they don't know any better. And they just think that the way I've done it is always the best way, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes the best way is just using your, your modeling package that you you already have. Like 3d studio max is something I've been using for God, 20 years almost. And there's still things I'm learning about it. And there's still almost nothing out there that does unwraps faster than max in the way that I work. I'm sure if I worked with Maya, there'd be a faster way than Maya. But in Max, using Max's default unwrap UVW window with poly and wrapper augmenting it is the fastest way I've ever done UVs. And I can do stuff on production timelines, get like UVs done in 15 to 20 minutes for complex models, and they don't look bad. So it's it's all about, like, like we said earlier, just trying to push yourself to become better at what you do. Because like I said, you're, you, you can only be you can be the best lawyer in the world. Right. But like, we're not lawyers. We're, we're artists and artists constantly have to learn new ways to improve because we're fungible. You ever heard of that term? <laughs> no. What, what, what is that a mixture of? So fungible is a term that usually refers to commodities. So like when you go buy, like if you were to put a, a purchase order down for a barrel of oil, 
a barrel of oil from Canada and a barrel of oil from like Saudi Arabia are the same thing. As far as the markets are concerned, wherever you get that barrel of oil doesn't matter because it's always worth the same amount. So it doesn't matter where it's come from, where it's been sourced, as long as it's the same grade of oil, it will always be worth the same amount. So if I go put a, a, a purchase order for 50 bucks worth of oil on the market, I'm going to get 50 bucks of oil and it won't matter where it came from because it's all been mixed together. That's my opinion on how we are as artists because I don't want to compare us literally to barrels of oil on the market, but more that like we are fungible to employers and we have to be competitive in order to even be employed. You can't be employed if you're going to take forever to make stuff. So to a lot of employers, artists are a dime a dozen. You can always get another artist. If one of them is too slow, they'll replace you. Trust me. I saw it happen plenty of times is a, it's a market where the employer always wins. So you always have to be the most powerful. It doesn't matter how good of an artist you are. That's the difference between other professions and us. A good lawyer can fetch a ton of money. A good artist can fetch a good amount of money, but will never fetch the same amount as another profession that is more like, I I, I like to say lawyers, but like a a good lawyer is going to always make more money than a good artist. There's no way around that just because the skills are so different. And because of the way the professions are in demand, you need a lawyer more than you need an artist, right? And you need like as an employer, if somebody isn't performing, it's so easy to swap them out for somebody that will. And that somebody like a lot of times in AAA, like you don't even need somebody that that is the best ever. You just need somebody that can do the job. So that's kind of what I mean when I say artists are fungible. It's very easy to replace us. And it's always important to be the best you can be if you want to be in this field, because unless you enjoy being unemployed, that can be a very real reality for you if you're not good enough. About, uh, Hopefully that all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense, man. Like, uh, there's there's definitely a fine line to kind of be proficient or at least on the bleeding edge and constantly evaluating software that is useful to your workflow, but also being mindful of uh, and being adaptable to certain stances where you have to stick to one software, especially when you're working in a smaller team or a smaller development right. team where you can like, hey, we can afford two software, pick your best. And you come back with saying like, hey, I can't do my full thing with just two. I need five. Uh, that becomes a problem. Uh, yeah. And it's something that actually I don't want to turn this into a blender talk, but I kind of want to know your opinions on that because that's a software that's kind of been creeping up in the last two years and gaining a lot of ground which finally i have to look into as a possible scenario uh or alternative to my 3d package where i'm like hey this is a, becoming a really powerful it might be the future very soon i need to get on very this. much so yeah um you know that joke about vegans it's like you know how somebody's a vegan don't worry they'll tell you yeah yeah it's kind of how i feel about people who use blender <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep, they're yep. always like the first people to say oh yeah i use blender hey guess what like nobody's talking about anything and then suddenly it's like oh yeah guess what i use blender mm-hmm. blender's great i have nothing against it i think it's great software i just haven't had the time to spend to learn it because i haven't mm-hmm. had a necessity to and that might sound like i'm contradicting what i've said in the past but i'm in a position where fortunately i don't need to learn blender there's no current necessity to understanding or using it um in fact i encourage people to learn it as you said it's going to be more relevant as time goes on um you and I are both old enough to know the Blender used to be kind of a joke at one point. Not mm-hmm. that the software itself was a joke, but the way yeah. artists treated it was a joke, yep. which is yep. kind of a really nasty thing. It's like, oh, you use Blender, you'll never get hired. You're 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 a scrub. 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's not the case. It's like use what you can work with. Just because you can't afford a license to max doesn't mean you're not an artist. It just means that you can't afford a license to max. Um, so yeah, if you can get a free alternative to something and it works just as good and nobody can tell, absolutely use it. Uh, if, if the free alternative has obvious caveats to it, like, uh, it doesn't do one major thing that needs to be done. That's an issue. And if you can't find a way to work around that, I wouldn't recommend working with the software, but blender has gotten so good lately that like, I've seen some stellar art made with it that I would never have thought was made with it. And that just shows how out of touch I am with blender because I don't keep up with it, but everybody I've ever talked to who uses it, uh, people I work with on system shock, for example, um, I know one of the guys, the, the lead artist, or well, used to be lead artist, he works with Blender nonstop. He makes most of his art with Blender, and you can't tell that it wasn't made with Max or Maya. I mean, Polygon's a polygon. It doesn't really matter how it was authored as long as it looks good in the end. So Yeah, it's very true. And I think they had a similar issue where, yeah, years ago, even I was making fun of Blender because uh, the, the it was a very hobbyist uh, type of software where anybody who can't afford game development would be using blender but they kept on like the founder and the people who supported the community saw the future and potential and it wasn't until recent years where uh like very prominent artists uh started to take hold of the software and push it to the point where we're like holy crap i didn't can't believe that this is actually pushed out it actually is kind of remind me of the unity problem because at first unity was kind of tailoring towards um hobbyists and uh the people who had the made with unity logo available were only using it for very low level art uh or at least producing um uh, when we think of unity we're thinking of like low budget at first but it was until recently you know now that they have bigger studios, bigger developers, a part of that, people are more aware that there are a lot more games made with Unity that can reach the graphic fidelity as other game engines. Yes. Yes. And I think Blender kind of went through the same type of cycle where it took a while for other developers to kind of jump on board to really showcase the ability of that software. And that's what I've been seeing in the last year and a half, at least. That's a good thing, too. It's nothing that we didn't need uh we need more free alternatives to things we need more people being you know capable of having empathy for those who can't afford software licenses we need people with ingenuity to make those free assets and those free licenses and those free softwares to be good uh, competition because otherwise what what alternative really do we have we end up with stagnation uh there's only so much innovation larger companies are going to do if they don't have somebody else holding them to the fire. Uh, that's unfortunately reality of the system that we live in. Uh, whether you like capitalism or don't, uh, I'm not going to get into my position on that subject. But ultimately, it's like that is the system we live in. And that is generally how the rule is played is that unless something is competing with something else, the, the field of product that is being offered tends to stagnate over time. So there's nothing really more to hold somebody to the fire than free alternatives to very expensive software. So uh, if nothing else, I welcome Blender for that because it's a very, very good breath of fresh air and a very good step in the right direction for the entire industry to have people with the ability to do AAA style modeling, like good stuff that, that doesn't require a ton of money. That, that There's nothing but good that comes out of that. Yeah, it definitely pushes other 3D packages um, to kind of step up their game, to kind of... 
uh, you know, signify why the worth is there, the value is there. If there's a free software that does things just as good or better, right? So uh, it's been uh, lacking in competition in terms of 3D package. So I'm glad in the last year and a half, we're seeing kind of like the shift in mentality and all, like you said, the vegans in the office uh, are kind of laughing at us now because we're going to them for expert advice. Like, how do you get started in the software that you've been championing for the last five years? <laughs> Just talking my ears off. And now they're like kind of sitting on a high horse uh, gladly because we do need them. But it is funny how the tables have turned. And that is why I try not to badmouth other software because you never know when you're going to need someone to help you with it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so being in this industry of ours and with the console shift fastly coming upon us, we think that we've seen what the next five years look like uh, with the ray tracing being powerful enough that we are handling. I think we're still in the cusp about uh, I think people are finally getting a handle on it to make it performant within a game, right? I don't know how it's going to look within the console. I don't know if we're there yet, but uh, photogrammetry being transformative in our texturing techniques, like what other adaptation and evolving do you see the industry going with the, let's just call it the PS5 and the X, what's the next Xbox, the next Xbox era uh, for game development? Uh, what is it? I think they call it turn around. <laughs> I think they call it like a the Scarlet, but I don't I don't know the the real name of it yet. I don't keep up to date too much with console developments. I usually just buy them about a year or two after, just to make sure that I don't get a brick. Um, you know, we, you know how bad we got burned on the 360 PS3 era with all the stuff that just you know burnt up for no good reason. Mm-hmm. So I, ch- I tend to be a little bit more cautious when it comes to consoles, but I can only imagine that they have to compete in the PC market because the titles that are being developed for PCs oftentimes are also being ported or being ported from PCs. Right. So it's not like we are, we were with the Bioshock era where like stuff is being made for consoles and then ported over to PCs. Uh, Largely these days, everything is basically made to the same specs and just consoles tend to run them at at lower specs, but like most people can't tell the difference unless you're like right up in the, in the screen. So I don't really see it being much of a a paradigm shift. I think what's going to end up happening is you're just going to get better visuals and you're going to end up playing most of the same games, except for the stuff that's always console exclusive. Like, well, up until recently, like the Ace Combat games, for example, um, like GDC 2018, I got to go play the the seventh one, like before it got released. And it's like, I couldn't believe how awesome that looked on a PS4. I can only imagine what Namco is going to do with, you know, the, the next Ace Combat game on a PS5. Like I, I couldn't even believe they put it on PC, but like that just shows you how interchangeable this stuff is today. Like the PC version looks pretty much identical to the PS4 version, even the PS4 Pro. There's not much of a difference between them. So, yeah, it's going to be very tough uh, as these consoles are getting stronger and stronger to kind of differentiate. Uh, there's always going to be. I think the hardcore people that will be able to tell the difference between a $2,000 rig versus a $500 console. Oh, yes. But to the regular <laughs> consumer, I don't think there'll be much of a difference because that's all they really see. Therefore, if there's an upgrade on the PC, they're just glad, right? But they're not really comparing which copy am I really getting because most people don't have like $2,000 rigs. <laughs> so, 
Mm. Um, and that's another issue with with consoles too uh to wrap up the the subject on that it's like there's not much of a difference between them i mean they're basically pcs these days like i mean i saw a what was it on reddit somebody had taken a ps4 and put windows on it (laughs) yeah so it's you know what's the difference between that and a pc it's just a box that's already been it's like it's a pre-built pc that you connect to your tv that's pretty much all it is so and that that it also happens to have um like exclusive games so ultimately there's really not much of any major difference yeah development wise i think everybody kind of breathed a sigh of relief when ps uh playstation the xbox has decided to kind of make their boxes really similar because uh during the ps2 and uh what their 60 days uh ps2 was oh not ps2 was it ps3 no ps2 yeah ps2 was a pain to develop for wow. yeah because no, of PS3. the world is it ps3 i thought ps3 they kind of yeah because the the 360 was uh, competing with the PS3, and the right. PS3 had a weird architecture on the right. CPU that nobody right. could figure out. Right, 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 right. And they fixed it with the PS4, yeah. Uh, on the yeah. console side, on the development side, it was a pain because we were constantly kind of running into problems. And 360 became like the base platform to kind of figure shit out. And then the PS3 was like whatever's left over, port it. <laughs> Just make it run. Yeah. It was Just a huge sacrifice. Yeah, a huge space. I love the PlayStation 2. Yeah the sony brand is strong but like uh i mean these are the shifts that we've seen on the technological front and as we mentioned before the uh photogrammetry i think is already established enough that people are at least working on these triple a franchises are finally embraced i think the last game the last big game that came out was uh, something Galen already voiced when we had him on the podcast where it was the God of War where they were still sculpting rocks and doing that a lot by hand. <laughs> but I think that was the last the last major big game or major studio that uh, hasn't fully embraced photogrammetry as the way to go. Oh, everybody's um, going to embrace it eventually. There's, It's the, the way of the future. Just like PBR was the wave of the future, eventually everybody will come over to it. It's just it's a cost-effective, proven me- a method to work. Um, like I'll share my screen with you if you want to see the, the project that I'm currently developing. Oh, yeah. Know. Do it. This was my... Actually, let me show you my... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, my college capstone first, and then you can kind of get an idea of just how much this thing has actually changed over the years. So this is what it used to look like. Okay. So this is UDK, um, super basic. Like this was what I meant when I talked about photogrammetry as improving my workflow. These textures, like this, um, this bark, um, this up here, like the, the dead fronds, these fronds themselves, those are all pictures I took when I lived in Tampa at the um, apartment complex I was at going to school. These uh, philodendrons here, the, the, the bark on this uh, palmetto bush, um, all that stuff. Like I literally built doing a really, cr- oh, even these elephant ears, crude photogrammetry workflow, like just taking pictures and using the original version of Endu on it and then turning it into a normal map. That's where I was. And that's why I look at it being so amazing because now I've got this and I did all this in a week and it took me close to like several months to even get that the same area done, building it all by hand. Like I took Quixel Mixer or... Uh, one of our texturing tools that you can use to blend scans together and created this uh, tileable floor, which doesn't even use uh, displacement. This is just like tracing over the geo uh, or tracing over what would have been displaced using max. So this is using um, 
you know, hard edges and whatnot, and then softening the normals. And then the same thing with this wall here too. So like I've, I've taken the photogrammetry workflow that we use at Megascans and I've just put it into my pipeline for my personal art. And what I've done is I've taken all the stuff that I had to make by hand before that I was going to take pictures of anyway, and then put that into a scene wherein I didn't have to make all that stuff. And I was able to get to the end result that I wanted to get in a much reduced amount of time trying to find the best way to put this. It's like, it just, it just looks better by, by orders of magnitude. It's faster by another order of magnitude. And in the end result, like I get to it and I don't feel like I I'm stressed out. I just enjoy the creation. So I put more effort into the other details that I might've been too tired to focus on like these, uh, what do you call it? Like these, uh, bits of fog on the sides that are rolling in kind of like the SF Bay during, you know, like during the evening hours or something, just little, little tiny details that I would have missed before. I'm not even like 20% done with this. I have like trees and stuff I need to add up here, but it's so much faster to work this way because I can just focus on putting these pieces in that I want to put in rather than having to make it all by hand. Yeah, definitely. As you are kind of, um, I know you kind of help with the technical uh, bugs and anything that uh, customers of Quixel would actually hit you up on. But like, uh, I, I wonder too what the kind of reasoning behind studios that uh, don't want to go fully on board with photogrammetry. Could it be just they think they want to create their own library and they don't want to do mega scans? Or what are the some of the priority? Uh, prior reasons on why they are not fully sold on this workflow? Um, so I don't want to get too much into it because some of it's like proprietary info that these studios have given me. So I can't really just talk about it. But as a general overview, a lot of what it ends up being is price. And that is one of the biggest hurdles that, you know, anybody has, like, you, you know, when you're uh, an artist and you're trying to convince your, your boss to, to let you work with the newest version of whatever that you want to work with, like, say you want to work with tool bag and do baking in there instead of having to wrangle around X normal, you know, how fast it works. And you know, the price difference between having to sit there and wrangle with X normal and, and, and the amount of hourly wages you're going to spend doing that versus just getting the bake the first time and tool bag. Uh, is going to pay for itself the first time you bake something. But your boss doesn't know that because they may not understand the intricacies of what you do as well as you do, because that's what they hired you to do. The problem with that is like, oftentimes these companies will reach out to, you know, I'm not going to name names again, but they'll want a license. And then we, we, we uh, give them a quote and they're like, well, this is too expensive because it doesn't, it doesn't fit with what we thought. And then what I end up saying is, well, imagine paying an artist to make everything and the amount of time it would have to take to get all this stuff built and then hope it actually reaches the same level of quality and hope that it reaches the same timelines that we have. Cause we offer instant access, right? You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for the artist to build these things to order. You already have rocks, you have components for trees, you have dirt, you have grass. Uh, hell, we even have swamp water, oddly enough. There's all these different things that you can put together that are already ready to go right out of the box. You put them into your scene, you put them into Unreal, Unity, your favorite renderer, whatever it is that you're working with. You just cut out that middleman of time. And you also cut out that middleman of uncertain expectations because you're an artist and I'm an artist and you know that we don't always make everything perfectly. But when you have something scanned exactly the same way, exactly the same methods used every single time, you can always be sure that it's going to be perfect that it's going to slot into what it is that you're trying to work with that you don't have to worry about whether or not there's massive black splotches that maybe you missed when you did a bake or 
their UVs are stretched or skewed or something because you're trying to rush through it and get it done. There's always hidden benefits that a lot of companies don't see when they look at these things. And that's even just true with any texture library in general. It's like you're, you're paying to have these things done and you don't have to worry about it and you can integrate them into your end result. You're not paying so much for uh, what's, what's the best way to put it. You're not paying to replace people. You're paying to just get to that end result faster. Yeah. And I definitely agree with that. Uh, I think uh, it's often overlooked or underestimated how long it takes to prepare something to finally get it to use. And especially having a library that you can drag and drop essentially to make your game look good right now is something that I think everybody appreciate to get to the next level for sure. If not, get on Get on with the program uh, because I feel like every three, five years, this is this, uh, there's like a, a wash that happens where the old devs that are resisting the change are facing uh, newer and younger <laughs> developers that are embracing change, uh, especially coming in with newer software that already improves their 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 momentum of being young and, 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 and ready to kind of just work hard and grind. Uh, that's where the danger shifts um, for a lot of developers that I know that um, just are just very slow uh, or resistant to to everything that's happening. So that's why it's a subject that I feel like every three, five years, no matter what it is, photogrammetry, lighting, or anything of that sort, um, that developers need to really be careful on um, and, and just be okay. I think if anything, if you have the time to at least... Uh, uh, look into these type of new techniques, new tools uh, to see if it's useful or not. That's fine, but at least be aware of it so that when the new, the new, uh, <laughs> the new hot hot shot comes in the office, you, you can keep up. Right, that's the scary thing. Where I feel like a lot of these developers are just completely shocked and so behind. Where uh, it's hard to at that point to justify their higher salary sometimes it's like well you are supposed to be the best here and we're paying you double of this new kid who's able to do the work in one fourth the time what's going on so that's the conversation that happens a lot that i uh, always warn developers about especially when new things happening i guess uh we're probably getting ready to close up here soon but one of the things i would i would recommend uh to everybody listening don't be one of those, well, I'll just come out and say it, one of those old fogies in art where they're like, uh, everything you're doing now is cheating. If you're, if you're trying to improve your workflow and you're, you're using asset libraries or whatever, it's cheating. There is no cheating in getting art done. It's the same like principle behind warfare and love, right? There's no cheating in that either. It's like everything is fair. If you can get to that end result and you can get there before the other guy competing with you for your job, absolutely do it. If it's illegal... I mean, yeah, make sure it's legal. I mean, don't, don't do anything <laughs> yeah. stupid. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, don't go murder somebody to make your art faster or something. But if you can use a texture library to get to that end result and it makes your work that much better, do it. There's no reason why you shouldn't. If you have this misplaced or not, I mean, rephrase, if you have a sense of honor or, or dignity or something that, that prevents you from using asset libraries, try to get past that. It's really nothing more than a personal limitation because you're going to find that not everybody shares your personal code of ethics on these things. And using an asset library is not cheating. There's no way it could possibly be construed as such because if every tool that comes along that makes your job easier is cheating, 
then you have to go all the way back to follow the logical route of that argument, which is using a computer is cheating because there's no other reason why it wouldn't be. Uh, if you're old enough like me, I'm 35. I remember when people would complain about making art on the computer. Like you're not a real artist. If you, if you use Photoshop, only real artists use, uh, you know, paintbrushes and you're not a real photographer. If you use digital photography, you're only a real artist. If you go and develop the film yourself in a dark room that you built in your basement, I'm like, the the gatekeeping has got to stop. If eventually it will, but like, don't be like that. Like, if it makes your job easier and it's legal, do it. There's no reason other than artificial handicaps and trying to earn respect of people that may not even care. Like, no, like nobody that I've ever shown my art to who doesn't work in this industry cared that I did it with mega scans. They cared that the end result was done. My bosses have never cared that I use mega scans in the work that I work develop. They cared that the work was done. If you if you can say that you did it all yourself. That's if that's how you want to work, go for it. But don't look down on other people because they use tools and things that make their job easier. Because ultimately, that's the whole point of being an artist. It's finding better ways to do these things while improving your visual quality. It's not about trying to suffer just so you can make it take 10 times hard longer and say, well, I did it all myself. Therefore, it's the best. It's like if you like to work that way, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't don't think that like don't fall victim to that trap. That is a a method of thinking that doesn't really get you any further with your career. And I should know because I was one of those people. Hell, but I was in, in the wrong direction. Like I was like, oh, why would you ever work on personal art? Like I already work all day long. Why would I want to come home and make more art? Uh, because if I could go back and slap like a 25 year old me a little bit, I would, I would say, because you need to stay relevant. <laughs> That's this is the profession you you entered. It's a competitive profession. There's nothing you can do about that except to stay relevant. And if you can't stay relevant, you're going to get replaced because there's all these people coming up now who would love your job. Definitely. So any tool set, I definitely sign off on that. That's going to improve your workflow and stay competitive in a legal, legal. way. <laughs> Highly encouraged. So don't go out there and start breaking fingers. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Jonathan, thank you for coming on uh, and joining us with GDUX. This is an enlightening talk. Uh, it's something that I feel every three, five years, like I said, there's a changing of tide and you're either with it or without or being left behind, right? So uh, these are wise words. I highly, highly uh, encourage any artists or developers out there to constantly think about being relevant. Uh, and uh, thank you. If there are, uh, if there is a way that uh, listeners and viewers out there can reach you or follow you, where would that be? If you want to look at my personal art, it is artstation.com slash synesthesia, which is difficult to type. Uh, so just look up Jonathan Holmes on Artstation. You'll find me. I have a big goofy grin. It's very tough to not see it. <laughs> Um, I regularly post work that I make there. The scene that I showed you guys haven't shown it outside of Quixel. Um, Hopefully I'll be done with that within the month. So that'll go up there soon. Um, I usually do breakdowns and how I do this stuff. So anybody who wants to learn or is just curious or just wants to know how I did some of the stuff, I'll gladly share. Uh, I love helping people out because, you know, when I was younger, I didn't have the same resources. There weren't tutorials everywhere for everything. And if there were, it was like a really basic tutorial that kind of like sucked. (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So it's like having 
the ability to learn from other people is so important and being able to share that knowledge is too. So like if you take anything else out of this conversation that we're having and like, just try to be a good person and just share the, the, the knowledge because we all came from somewhere and nobody knew everything being born. And if you can help other people, you're helping yourself because like, that's really the reason why we exist is to make the world better for everybody else, not to, to hoard information and, and just try to hold that competitive advantage. If you, if your work is good, it, it's going to speak for itself. If your work isn't, well, there's not a whole lot you can do about that except try to improve. And the only way to improve is to learn from others. And if you can't learn from others, well, or at least the least you can do is try to, you know, teach, you know, teach other people what you know so that other people have an easier time of getting to that point. It doesn't mean you're teaching them to take your job. It just means that you're making friends and connections and that's the kind of thing that you need to be a good artist. It's not just the work. It's also being a good person and having that network that supports you when you need help, just like you help them. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. It's always fun kind of sitting there with you and kind of going through this. Uh, always make me feel a little lazier after t- <laughs> every time we talk. You're always having new artwork. I was like, oh, man, I need to get, be relevant. Uh, Jonathan's going to take all my jobs. But uh, I want to thank you. And I, I'm on behalf of everybody that's viewing uh, for your time. Uh, we are definitely going to follow up with your journey and your art station and follow you on other social platforms as you have pointed out. And uh, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Definitely going to probably hear you back on our podcast at some time. <laughs> I'd love to be back. You guys are always a pleasure to hang out with. Of course, man. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I'm going to let you go and uh, say hi to the family for me. <laughs> be an odd, be an odd greeting. <laughs> it's like Brandon said, hi, who the hell is Brandon? That works too. <laughs>